Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, I'm Warwick Fairfax, and you are listening to the Beyond the Crucible podcast. Today, we have a conversation with Glenn Williams. Now, before we start, uh, I wanted to update you about a tragedy that has happened recently to Glenn Williams and his family. Glenn's son, Ryan, 19 years old, suffered a massive stroke and shortly thereafter passed away. Just an unthinkable tragedy of losing a child. As it happened when we learnt of uh, the stroke that Ryan suffered, we had already scheduled a date for this podcast to be released and we were going to air it pretty soon after it was recorded. Uh, Once we um, heard what had happened to Ryan, we postponed the airing of this episode. The reason that we were so keen to air this episode after we recorded it was, as you'll hear from Glenn, Glenn shares his story of being a senior leader in a large organization, and he suffered a career-defining setback when that ended, and he felt he had to leave. Very few senior leaders will air with such vulnerability and honesty what they went through and the challenges of uh, bouncing back from this kind of a setback. So we subsequently reached out to Glenn and just told him that we would, with his permission, like to air this episode because it was just so powerful. And Glenn has graciously agreed. And I want to read what Glenn shared in allowing us to air this episode. He said this, Experiencing another crucible moment does not diminish the significance of an earlier one. So we are grateful to Glenn for allowing us to release this episode. And here is our conversation with Glenn Williams. Welcome, everybody, to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the program and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And you have come in to a podcast that discusses crucible experiences, those difficult things that can either happen to us, that we can be involved in perhaps helping happen to us. But there's moments in life that can be painful, can be traumatic, can change the trajectory of our lives. And we talk about them here not to dwell on them, not to wallow in them, but as leaping off points to lead a life of significance. What can we learn from these crucible experiences? That's the focus of our conversations that we have here. And joining me, as always, in these conversations is Warwick Fairfax, the host of the program and the founder of Crucible Leadership. Warwick, we've got a good one today. Absolutely, Gary. Uh, Thanks so much. And I'm so excited to have you, uh, Glenn, on the program. Thanks, Warwick and Gary. It's great to be here. That Glenn that Warwick referred to is Glenn Williams, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Glenn. Glenn is the founder and CEO of LCP Global, a company that builds the capacity of leaders to lead themselves, lead others, and lead their business. 
With more than 25 years working as a psychologist, executive, and board member in more than 40 countries, he is passionate about changing the way leaders think and behave. Before founding the firm in 2010, Glenn held senior roles with a global U.S.-based NGO with offices in 18 countries, becoming the chief operating officer for global operations. Earlier in his career, Glenn worked in sales for a multinational company, NSK Bearings, and founded ProFam Australia, which devoted a range of community-based programs focused on building stronger families and communities. These programs found their way into Asia, North America, Europe, South Africa, and the Middle East. Glenn holds a doctorate in global leadership from George Fox University, where he focused on the relationship between leadership, character, and performance. He also facilitates executive roundtables for Halftime Australia, helping leaders align their successes, influences, and opportunities to build a legacy of significance. Glenn is married to Natalie and has three teenage children, which he says here creates their own challenging situations. <laughs> Did you have to pause and just emphasize that? <laughs> you don't leave that just hanging there. No, exactly no. Right. I mean, yeah, we have to make sure because, again, we're talking about crucible experiences and yeah. a life of significance and raising three teenagers is definitely a life of significance. Exactly. <laughs> And what's interesting, uh, Gary, is I know you've known Glenn for uh, a few years and I've known Glenn for a little bit. So it's uh, so fun to have Glenn on the program. We met through a mutual halftime Australia acquaintance and um, got, you know, to chat. And he put me on to a tremendous marketing and branding firm in the U.S. Signal that's been so helpful to me. So I owe Glenn a lot and so thankful. So really, thank you so much for being here. And so kind of a good place to start is with crucible leadership, we always like to understand someone's crucible experience and what that was like and how they got over it, how they bounced back to what we call a life of significance, a life that's on purpose, helping others. But to really understand the kind of getting beyond the crucible part, you have to understand the crucible. So tell us a bit about you and your crucible experience. Thanks, Lorik. I think my crucible experience, or certainly the one that I'm talking about today, you know, really goes back to 2010. I think, you know, I was working in a you know, chief operating officer role for for a large global uh, NGO, and you know, things have been, I want to say, pretty cruisy. I guess, you know, things were going well, although at the time, lots of different challenges. The GFC hit. There was a significant founder transition, lots of restructuring within the organisation, and so. Apart from those normal, what I would say, relatively normal challenges that many businesses go through, you know, one day, I guess, I had an unexpected conversation with the CEO of that organization, which led me to, to ultimately resign the position that I was in. You know, like many crisis points, I probably didn't see that coming, that, that particular conversation. And I felt that it was a conversation that really questioned my integrity. And that was something that I'd always held very strongly to and, uh, you know, attempted to maintain, you know, throughout my working my working life. But, you know, having had, ultimately having had that integrity question, really felt that I couldn't continue in the role with the confidence of the CEO. And so, you know, felt that it was important at that time to resign. Not an easy decision, to be honest. You know, I'd been involved with the organization in different roles in Australia and also in the US for, you know, almost 18 years. So, you know, this 18 years in an organization, it's 18 years of building great friendships, you know, very strong relationships. You put your roots very deep in, into an organization and into the people that make up that organization from a, 
and in this context from all different countries or a host of different countries. So to actually resign and leave, then to really be in a place of like, wow, what did I just do? What just happened? And the impact of that on Natalie, my wife and my children was, was also quite profound. And at the end of 2010, made the decision to relocate back to Australia. That in itself was a difficult decision to make. But again, we felt our hand was kind of forced to do that. And so relocated back to Australia. I think at that point I'd been quite, I think I didn't realize where I how burned out I actually was, mm-hmm. not just from that experience, but in the, the lead up to that time and feeling somewhat burned as well from some uh, very close friends really went back to Australia and felt like, wow, you know, it really wouldn't interest me to just to move into another role quickly because I really, quite frankly, didn't know what I wanted to do. And secondly, didn't feel that I was really in a position to make a healthy decision about what to do next. I mean, it's interesting what you're talking about because it's one thing to be fired. It could be, you know, and you resigned in your case, but, you know, it could be downsizing. It could be, you know, economies going in another direction. Maybe new investors come in and want to bring in their people. I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen in the corporate world, but this is a bit different. This is more, you know, it wasn't that your intelligence or your ability was questioned. It was more your character. And somebody questions your character, I mean, that's devastating. That almost feels worse than if somebody questions your competence, that's one thing. But this this feels like a lot worse, don't you think, that they're questioning your character? Yeah, look, I think it is. You know, well, and particularly if you hold on to that ideal as being, you know, part of who you are and it's that reputation you've worked really hard to maintain and build. And, you know, I still remember growing up, my father always used to say, you know, your word is everything. And so, you know, for me, in a way, to have strived for so long to ensure that my word was my word and then to feel that that had been not only questioned but actually brought into disrepute, you know, at that time was was quite difficult. And I think also responding, I guess, to the reactions of others at that time as well. I think, you know, like most people, you try and leave any organisation hopefully well. You know, there's no point bringing any organisation or any Mm -hmm. individual who's been involved in that through dragging them through the mud, so to speak, or as you pointed out earlier, working in our conversation, mm. shooting arrows, mm. actually not healthy for anybody. But it became difficult to articulate to people why I was leaving. You know, for, for them, it was like, well, hang on a minute, you're not just going to leave, you know. And so um, that made it all the more difficult to kind of move on because I felt like I was being a little bit disingenuous in terms of... Um, you know, trying to explain why I was leaving the organization that I've been part of, like I said, for almost 18 years. And that's got to have been so difficult because, I mean, I've seen this in different organizations where somebody leaves and it's like, okay, I don't get that. You know, why is this happening? And I'm sure there's a lot of folks that say, you know, Glenn's doing such a great job, has been with the organization for a while. Why would he leave? Doesn't he care about the mission of the organization? I mean, you know, was he kind of lost his belief in the whole uh, mission what's the deal here and i'm sure friends would have asked you and for the reasons you mentioned you couldn't tell them because you didn't want to throw arrows and you know you're giving them answers that you know are going to be unsatisfactory yeah and it's like well glenn i thought we were good friends and you're not telling me i mean what's this about that's got to have been unbelievably difficult some of those conversations well, which makes it quite difficult, I think, to move on in some respects, because on the one hand, you know, there's a story that, as you said, it's quite inadequate, <laughs> but it's a story that you tell, which is the one that you know, people are hearing. 
then there's the other side of the story that, that only very few, only those closest to you are seeing. Look, I, you know, I'm sure my wife would do a, a much better job at, uh, than me to explain the, the impact of that time. I still remember making the decision to resign. I literally jumped in my car, I went home, and you know, I just, honestly, I cried my eyes out. I felt like I was letting down all of the people that were reporting to me and so many people who, again, who I worked with, who I knew well, and, and I think to an extent, everything that you've built and been a part of, to see that pushed to the side. And now all of a sudden, you're no longer part of it, which again, I think, you know, part of a crucible experience brings into question your sense of who you are, your sense of identity, your sense of self-worth, and how do you move forward when those sorts of things start to become quite confusing or question. Uh, absolutely. And I don't want to dwell on this too much, but when our integrity's question for most of us, our first instinct is to fight back, is to debate. Obviously, ultimately, the CEO gets to decide what they want to do. I mean, you must have at least tried to say, well, I disagree, don't see it that way, and tried to defend yourself. And sometimes we're in this agree to disagree kind of mode where, I don't know, you can have this conversation and you're talking past each other. I imagine with, again, I don't need to know details, but you had to push back a bit saying, I'm not seeing this. <laughs> what the heck is going on? Yeah, you do. And I think you try and do that the best way you can. I, you know, I've come to the realization, Warwick, that there, you know, there are perspectives. And, you know, in this context, there were two different realities. And, right. you know, and they didn't align. And so, yes, on the one hand, there is the temptation to want to jump in and defend yourself. And, right. you know, how could it lead to this? On the other hand, the fact that it did lead to this uh, and clearly... Uh, you know, there were two conflicting realities, then, you know, it probably wasn't healthy to continue anyway. So, um, you know, and that's what I mean. I think, you know, having come to that decision of then realizing I'd lost the confidence of the CEO, and then it was really time to move on. In a way, it makes it sound like the decision was quite easy. Look, you know, let's just make the decision and move on. But I think moving on became much more difficult and much harder than I ever imagined it. But I'm guessing, and I'm going to put words in your mouth here for a second and correct me if I'm wrong, but you did what you did because you felt like it was in the best interests of the organization and that some protracted conflict in some sense, whatever the word is, wouldn't have been good for the organization. And whether it was good for you is another question, but you did what you did, I'm assuming, because you thought it was the right thing to do in the circumstances. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I think there's an element of truth in, you know, there's no point hanging around at that point. Um, you know, uh, you don't want to potentially be seen to be white anting, you know, anything or creating, you know, undertones that would undermine the CEO and the leadership team. And it's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for the organization. Ultimately, it's not healthy to you. It wasn't healthy to me, Warwick. You know, so again, I, I think tough decision at the time. Lots of people make very similar decisions. I think one of the things that made it difficult for me to move on, and, I, you know, I, I've come to see that this is quite prevalent, you know, in society and for many people who move from one organization to another or move out of a particular senior role, often they're required to sign a confidentiality agreement, things like this. And right. so they're not to, to talk about, you know, the particular circumstances that may have led to that departure. And the challenge with that, of course, is, you know, how do you resolve that? How do you deal with all the conflicting emotions? How do you process that in a healthy way to be in a position where you can make a really good decision about what is next? And so what I've discovered in some of the work that I've done since then with other CEOs and other executives, you know, they've developed some fairly significant, what I would call dysfunctional 
behaviors within their leadership right. role and, and dysfunctional thinking because they've not been able to adequately process and move on from an earlier experience that was perhaps quite hurtful or quite destructive to them. So, um, you know, how do they do that when they're you know, being forced to sign something, not to talk about it, and then they just yeah. move on? And, and, okay. and that's probably very common. I mean, last question on the particulars. When these things happen, we feel maybe betrayed or hard done by, that's obviously normal. But it's also normal to have maybe a thought, maybe Tempest, that, that was my fault. Or maybe, was I really that person? Like, you're pretty sure you weren't. But being human, at least for me, when these things happen, I might feel like that wasn't my fault. I don't think, maybe, was it? Did you go through any of that self-doubt? Like, gosh, is any of this possibly true? Actually, in this context, not really, because, you know, what was being brought into question was something that I knew 100% was not something got that it, was... Got it. It was two, oh, different, two different realities. So, um, so not really. Yeah. But again, you know, you talk about moving on, you know, from mm-hmm. a situation like this. And I think, in a way, it sounds kind of selfish, but it, it was just about me. It was just mm-hmm. about moving on. In a way, I'd like to think I could do that, you know, fairly well. You know, we've developed skills over the years. We acquire experience. We've become very self-sufficient. But I think what I found difficult was helping the family move on, helping my wife move on. And, you know, I talk about secondary pain to some leaders where our wives often carry the pain that we're feeling. And in a way, they carry it quite differently because they feel your pain and they also feel the the impact of that pain on family. So in our context, it was a, a little bit more complex in the sense that, you know, we had, you know, we'd left Australia to work in the US, so we had, uh, different issues in terms of visas and green cards and so on and relocation expenses and things like this. So, you know, we were suddenly confronted with, well, do we stay and live in a bit of a fishbowl and be at risk of feeling drawn into different internal battles within the organisation by people who wanted to kind of stir the pot or was it best for us just to leave cleanly and then relocate back to Australia, which is the decision that we decided. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that as listeners from previous podcasts will know, I kind of was in somewhat of a similar situation is that when the takeover of Fairfax Media ended up not working and the company went under, I felt like I couldn't stay in the goldfish bowl of Australia, at least, especially not Sydney, where the company was headquartered. And, you know, the name Fairfax means a lot, especially in Sydney. And I moved to the U.S. with you know, my wife's American, so fortunately that gave me that option. But there's no way I could have continued in Sydney. So I absolutely can relate. And I also can relate that, again, I've talked about this in podcasts and blogs and elsewhere. Many years ago in 1976, other members of my family uh, threw my dad out as chairman of Fairfax Media and they might have had their reasons, and, you know, I don't really see that. It was my dad. Obviously, my mother was pretty angry. You know, I was 15 at the time, and it was devastating for him. But that secondary family reaction, if you will, yeah, I still remember that. It was just, how could they do that to my dad? And, you know, it's decades ago. I have a bit of a broader perspective. Still don't think it was really justified, to be honest. <laughs> But, you know, maybe a little bit broader, but, but I get it. Those who love us are really hurting. So um, so you're in that space where you're back in Australia. You're thinking, what's happened? I think you've also talked previously about, you know, who am I? Who's Glenn Williams? You know, my identity. What do I do now? I mean, 
talk a bit about that space and then how in the world did you get out of that dark place of just, well, now what? You know, I can't talk about this even with people in Australia, at least not publicly. How did you get out of that hole, if you will, of, I don't know, self-doubt, what's my identity, all that, I mean, which I can obviously relate to. <laughs> how did you get out of that? It's a great question. And I, I think, you know, again, Warwick, you know, our identity certainly becomes very enmeshed with the work that we do. You know, if you think, you know, over a long career, if you think of, you know, a lot of the affirmation that you receive for a lot of your achievements, for, for the promotions that you might get from time to time, some of the amazing people that you get to meet and be part of their lives in fairly influential roles themselves and different parts of the world, it's only natural for you to feel like, well, you know what, this is part of who I am. I mean, I love this role. And of course, what happens when you take that away? What is left? And I, and I think that's probably one of the things that I struggle with the most. When you strip away something that has been a significant part of my life. And it was more than just a job. It was you know, very much a strong sense of purpose, a strong sense of call that I had to that work. And, and so for that to be pulled away and removed, all of a sudden it was like, what is left and who am I? And I'll never forget just a couple of years later, my 13-year-old my son at the time saying to me, Dad, you know, how come you're not successful anymore? Mm. And I was like, well, so let's grab a dagger and stab that through the heart of oh. Mortimer, you know. But, but, but oh. really, in his eyes, and what had been part of his experience was dad being an influential role, having an impact in the work that he was doing, building teams and building into people and seeing great things happen. And, you know, perhaps having, you know, a great budget to manage and, you know, hundreds of people or whatever the case might be. So in a way, his definition of success was through that. And so for me, what I had to do as part of my own recovery, I guess, from this crucible experience was really needing to redefine success. What was success really about? And a friend of mine, Andrew, gave me a book almost as I got off the plane in Melbourne, you know, November 2010. He said, Glenn, you need to read this. And, you know, again, partly because of what I was going through at the time, I said, look, thanks, Andrew, and threw it on the bookshelf <laughs> and sat there for, for at least the next six months. So I pulled it off one day, and the title struck me of all things. The title of the book is called Isolation, and it's written by Shelley Trebesh. She has a very strong Christian faith in that book. I think something that I could connect with was this sense of where your identity is being stripped away, an identity that you become very familiar with, comfortable with and very dependent upon you're used to people relating to you through a you know through a particular prism i guess or lens and in that she talks about sometimes we go through voluntary and involuntary periods of isolation where there's a stripping away process but the stripping away process is an important part of helping you to recreate a new identity for what is next now at the time i probably didn't really want to hear that, and I was still hurting. And, but I, you know, over time, I began to see the wisdom in that. And so all of a sudden, I realized that it was important for me to have to create a new narrative. Gary, you mentioned earlier, the, you know, to create a new trajectory for your life. Right. And I think you can only really do that when you can make sense of what has come before and you reframe that and leverage that in such a way that you can learn from it and leverage those learnings moving forward into a new season in your life. 
Right. And one of the things that we talk about a lot at Crucible Leadership and on this podcast is this idea of building from your crucible experience to a life of significance. And it strikes me, Glenn, that it may have had an extra measure of difficulty for you because what you were doing before you felt was very significant and it was having impact on families and in communities. It wasn't like you were just grabbing the bottom line in those experiences. I imagine that added some heft to the difficulty as you were looking to what to do next to make another significance because you had had not just success, but you'd had significance. How did that play out as you were looking uh, toward next steps? Yeah, Gary, I think that's a good observation. I think you're right. There was that sense where you felt that you were working in an area of significance. I know Bob Buford, who wrote the book Half Time, you know, From Success to Significance, he talks about somebody with a success orientation is typically all about them. You know, a significance orientation is about doing something for somebody else. You know, as Simplistic as that, or as simple as that, Gary, I think you're right. I was involved in an organization that was making a difference, and it was something I was proud to be part of. And so when that was gone, yes, I think you start to think, well, hang on a minute. You know, not only have you taken away success, but now you've taken away significance as well. So it probably was made a little bit more complex or more difficult from that. But, you know, there are opportune moments too. You know, we might call them chance meetings or coincidental or whatever. But, you know, I, I came back to Australia and a friend of mine invited me to meet with a gentleman by the name of Jossie and himself had a significant global not-for-profit that he was building and there were some governance issues and global partnership issues that he needed some help addressing. So, you know, my friend said to me, listen, why don't you just go and help him until you work out what you want to do? Maybe just kind of do a little bit of consulting here and there and you know, be a little bit more patient and process where you're at. Well, I ended up doing that, and then it was at that same day I met John Sycamore for the first time, and John was on Jossie's board, and John Sycamore heads up the work of Halftime in Australia, but also is the director of you know, Halftime for the Global Partnership of Halftime outside of the U.S. The head office is in Dallas in the U.S., and John actually said, Glenn, you're in Halftime. And I remember reading back in 1994, Warwick, when I think it was the year, the first year that the book was published, and it was a time when Bob Buford, very successful businessman, you know, very entrepreneurial, and, you know, he had tragically lost his only child in a drowning accident and so went through his own crucible experience and was confronted with, well, what do I do now? At the end of the day, what is more important or most important? And he said, you know what, all of the wealth, all of the trappings of wealth, everything that I've accumulated, you know, I'd happily give all of that away to have my son back. And so he went through what he calls half-time. And, you know, I know we often refer to half-time in the context of a football game or something like that. But in a way, it's very similar. We get to a season in our life, and it's not just a career change. We get to a season in our life where we begin to question the values that we've been living by. We get to question what has happened and how can I leverage that in a significant way in the second half of my life. Bob Buford in his book, he talks about Peter Drucker, for example, you know, really probably one of the world's leading management gurus. And Peter Drucker would make the comment, we're overprepared for life one, we're underprepared for life two. And so, you know, as I met John and John said, Glenn, you're in half time. Let me walk with you through that journey. John himself had sold a very sizable business. And, you know, after discovering that he also was in hard time and he was at risk of losing his marriage and his family, and he realized that success wasn't all cut out to be what he thought it was. 
And so he said, Glenn, let me walk with you through this time to help you discover, you know, what is going to be more purposeful, more significant for you in the second half of your life. And so some of those incredibly important meetings and learning to look at the first half of my life a little bit differently through a new lens with a view to saying, how do I take that and leverage that in the second half of my life? I think those sorts of meetings were very important. I want to take one second, if I can, because I know where the conversation is going to go here, and it's going to be really interesting. But what you just talked about in describing halftime, Glenn, is what Warwick and Crucible Leadership talks about in discussing what he calls a refining cycle. And it seems to me that this concept of halftime is almost a doorway, an entryway to this refining cycle of from your crucible, understanding how you're designed, understanding what your vision is, crafting a vision and making that vision a reality. So you guys both independently of each other have come to this model that listeners should pay attention as we have the rest of this conversation because it's a crossroads of sorts. It's an entryway of sorts. It's a refining cycle of sorts at this halftime. Warwick, would you say that what Glenn just described as halftime is similar to what you went through and certainly similar to what Crucible Leadership's about? Absolutely, absolutely. Kind of one thing I just wanted to touch on first is one of the things that the listeners need to understand is this concept of identity. And Glenn has really talked about, in not so many words, a lot of his identity was wrapped up in this global NGO that did a lot of good for people. It wasn't just making widgets. It was something that Glenn really cared about, felt like was important. And then when that ends, it's like, well, what's left of Glenn Williams? You know, who am I now? And I can certainly relate, as again, a lot of our listeners will know, growing up in a 150-year-old family media business, my identity was wrapped up in Fairfax Media. And it wasn't just producing widgets, it was producing papers in Australia that tried to serve the country and the community. There was a feeling, was a sacred trust that we were trying to do good. So when that ended, and my last name is Fairfax, it's like, well, my whole mission in life is gone. Well, now what do I do? In one sense, there are similar overtones. And yeah, it took most of the night. He's pretty dark as I was trying to figure out, well, now what? It took me years to recover, if you will. So I can absolutely relate. So you've had to, it sounds like, build a new sense of identity. It's not just based in success. Even success in an organization with a wonderful purpose. You know, that's great, but our identity should be separate from the organizations we work for. And most business leaders, they're not there, right? Their identity is wrapped up in that. So, I mean, does that make sense? I mean, you know, obviously a lot of leaders of organizations, you probably see this every day. True. And I think, you know, Warwick, we've got to be really careful. There's nothing wrong with success. Either. Exactly. Uh, exactly. In fact, uh, you know, part of our, you know, the new company that I'm the CEO of and we you know, work with executives and leaders all around Australia and different parts of the world as well. And we want to see them succeed, not only in their respective businesses, but we want to see them succeed in life. We actually want to see right. them succeed in their marriages, in their families. And, you know, research is you know becoming far more common now that points to, you know, as leaders increase in areas of responsibility as they climb the corporate ladder, the poorer the quality of their relationships. So at a time when arguably they need those relationships the most, they're actually in decline. And so we do quite a lot of work with leaders around this whole area of how do you make sure that you put in place the right strategies to nurture and build meaningful relationships that ultimately will help you to be more successful in life and in business? So, you know, and I think the temptation worry for me, and I don't know if you felt this way, 
in regards to yourself. Yes, there's a sense of I just want to run away and escape and hide and wish I didn't have to talk to anybody again. But the other part of that is because we're, we're generally fairly driven to achieve or wired to achieve, we often are looking for the next thing very quickly. You know, in other words, let's not deal with everything. Let's just race into another role and take on another senior role and everything will be okay and then I can forget what's just happened. And so for me, and part of the halftime process was, hang on a minute, that could be incredibly detrimental. Why would that be a healthy thing for me to sweep under the carpet everything that's just happened and all of the conflicting emotions and conflicting mindset and things like this and move into a new role and pretend that never existed and then hope to be really effective in this new role? Right, because you, so you've kind of got, that, you've got to do the you've got to do the inner work before you do the outer work. I mean, if you haven't dealt at least to some level with the stuff within, you probably end up hurting other people, which is not your desire. So, you were very wise. Well, I don't know whether I was wise, Warwick. I had some wise people around me who were willing to <laughs> right. walk with me. And I think you know, and again, that's an important step. I think of you know moving through or moving beyond a crucible experience. I talk about the importance of minimizing the noise. Everybody has an expectation of what they want from you, what you should be doing. You know, I had good friends who said, well, Glenn, look, forget it ever happened. Just go and jump in. Here's a few senior roles. You'd be really good at this. Why don't you take on this? Or this organization needs help. But then unfortunately, I had some others who said, well, hang on a minute, Glenn, don't, don't rush this. You know, push the pause button. Let's spend some time thinking about what happened. What have you learned from that? What's going to be beneficial from that experience that you can take with you as you move forward? and as you work with others. So, you know, minimizing the noise was really important. And I think the second part of that is just surrounding yourself with some really wise people. And wise, not necessarily that they have to be highly intelligent. Wise in the sense of, you know, they've walked down a similar path. They've come through that. They've learned from that. They're comfortable with you being able to be transparent with them in a safe place and, and journey with them. So I think having some of those people, and like I said, people like John, the John Sickemers of this world, walking with you on that journey certainly made it a little bit easier for me. And that's a point I think that our listeners really need to understand is when you're going through the season in the desert, as both you and I went through, having a couple people that care for us, are with us, and can help guide us is so helpful. You mentioned John Sycamore, and then, you know, with Jossie and the um, NGO doing some global work in different places, it's almost seemed like, you know, if you're a person of faith as we are, that, you know, God puts people in our path that helps us when we need that help if we're willing to listen. And fortunately, you listen to John and others, and do you look back and say, boy, there was some building blocks that helped get me back on the path, back to, you know, what Gary's talking about, refining cycle of, okay, what's the first step or the first cycle, the second? And do you look back and see, in hindsight, there was a path? that led you to the fantastic work that you're doing now from that dark place. Which I must say, at the time, you may not have that sense of clarity on the path. In other words, you can't see the path, you're on it, but you can't, it's not clear. And so nobody says that you've got to enjoy, you're jumping out of your skin to enjoy a refining process. <laughs> uh, it hasn't been a process I've enjoyed. I can look back now and say, wow, what an incredible experience. Look what I've learned. Look at the people that I've met look at some of the new opportunities that have emerged, look at some of the work that we're now doing with leaders. I can look at all of those things now and say, 
that's fantastic. But nothing, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. You know, I'm not going to look back and say, well, I'd love to go through that again. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't want to go through that again. Unfortunately, you know, I don't have to go through that same experience again. There might be other crucial experiences and there certainly have been some other tough challenges. But, um, you know, but we learn to move on. And I think, you know, again, it is pushing that pause button. It is trying not to race into the next thing uh, that gives you the opportunity to look at things a little bit more deeply. And as you said, it's the internal work. But even beyond the internal work, sometimes it's other emerging opportunities that haven't been obvious to you because you haven't been looking. You know, so I'll never forget a doctorate through George Fox University in global leadership. And, and Gary, you'll laugh at this probably, but, you know, I had to make that decision three weeks before I had actually resigned from the organization that I resigned at. Wow. Uh, and in a way, what an incredible blessing, because if I hadn't waited and resigned and then had to make a decision, I probably would have said, forget it. No, I'm done. I'm not going to do that. But having already made the commitment and paid the money, the down, you know, all of that sort of stuff and launched into that, you know, I was committed. And so it was part of my life. And it was an incredible part of my life in the next three years because we had study intensives in Germany and England and South Korea and Kenya. We went to Hong Kong, South Africa. So I had opportunities to engage leaders from all industry sectors, hundreds of leaders, and talk to them about issues of character, talk to them about you know, leadership challenges that they faced in their respective organizations and businesses. And so it opened up enormous opportunities to build new relationships, to do new work, to glean you know, fresh insights. You know, none of that may have happened had I stayed in my previous role. And so, in a way, it was just a new opportunities that really became more apparent as I went through that experience. I want to talk a bit about LCP Global, but before I do that, I think a couple of things you've just highlighted, it's important for the listeners to hear is, one is, when you go through something traumatic, as you did and I did, you might be able to get over it and hopefully be functional, as I'd like to think we both are, but they're going to be scars, you know, that's just reality. It's not like the pain ever completely goes away. When I go back to Australia and certainly to Sydney and yeah, you know, it's not as bad as it used to be, but it's there's still memories and reminders and yeah, you know, it's still there's some degree of pain, obviously, especially when I go back. So that's sort of one mark. I think it's important to realize and also just, you know, the hand, divine hand, if you will, the fact that you'd signed up for that course a few weeks before resigning again that's feel like there was somebody guiding you even if you didn't quite realize what was happening at the time but just amazing but what you do now with lcp global i think is really exciting i think it has the five anchors i think one of the things you talk a lot about feel passionate about is character people think well okay being successful being smart in business but but character what the heck does character have to do with business i mean you know the board of directors typically don't value character or at least they don't grade you on your character you know let's grade you on a five-point scale and you know your bonus will depend on how you did on your character index in the last quarter so talk a bit about lcp global in particular character yeah so you know the work that we do really really do you find leaders who are incompetent you know if they've worked their way up to a a senior role um, you know there may be some blind spots but certainly you know most of them are, are quite competent but um but, you know, where they probably struggle the most, it's they have limited capacity. You know, they're being pulled in multiple directions. And because of whether it's pressure from shareholders or pressure from 
the board or the pressure they place themselves under the, to, to grow a business and to make a business successful. You know, they take shortcuts and the impact of those shortcuts on the business and on staff and so on. So, you know, often it's a capacity issue. And so we talk, we often talk to leaders about how do we actually build capacity into their lives where they actually have the capacity to lead themselves, to lead others, and then to lead their business. And usually, you know, what we found typically is most, you know, whether it's executive coaching or leadership development programs, they focus all about business. But there are so many other variables that can impact on a business and the life of a leader and ultimately the success of a leader. Character is one of those things. And Warwick, I don't need to tell you really. I mean, like, in fact, even here in Australia, just this last couple of weeks, Westpac Banking Corporation, you know, it's, it's up on charges of $23 million illegal transactions. You know, so when people talk about, well, how is character related to business? Tell me how character isn't related to good business. And I think, you know, sometimes we've got to be able to turn the conversation upside down a little bit here. So we've had a number of recent royal commissions uh, with, uh, into the, the aged care area, into the banking sector, finance and banking sector. But, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's politics, whether it's impeachment hearings, whether it's whatever, you know, character somewhere is very close to the core of any leader's journey. But rarely will you have a leader come to you and say, look, Glenn, I need some work done on character. Can LCP come in and help us work on refining and developing our character? Right. Uh, usually occurs differently. Usually there's a symptom first. And so the symptom might be, hey, listen, I'm losing some fairly significant talent. We just don't seem to be, a hold on, be able to hold on to great talent in the organization as a continued stream that that revolving door, they come in and they leave fairly quickly. You know, what we would ask is why are they leaving? Is it purely because of the lack of opportunities or growth or is there something else? Is it part of the culture? Is there a lack of character within the culture? So we talk about the importance of aligning the internal and the external brand. Often you have a, you know, you've got the external facing brand, but internally often it can be quite different. And really, that's why I embarked on the dissertation topic that I did that explores the relationship between character and performance, because as businesses, we can put our core values up on the wall, have it in a foyer and say, you know, here's what we believe in. This is really important. But those that work with you, those that are inside the organization, they have some serious questions about whether those values are being lived out and practiced, uh, you know, on the inside. So, you know, what we've discovered as a result of working with leaders are these five leadership anchors. And one of those anchors, which is foundational to successful leadership, is what we call resilient character. How do we help leaders build a resilient character? And having a, a strong character is part of being, becoming a resilient leader and a resilient organization in the face of change. You know, I feel like you're highlighting some really important points. I remember as you would... Enron that uh, went bust and, you know, all sorts of lawsuits, their mission statement sounded wonderful. We want to respect people and care for everybody. And, but it was all hypocrisy. They weren't treating their people like that or their customers. And so hopefully as you're engaging with boards and CEOs, they realize that character impacts the bottom line. You know, obviously, you know, the Westpac, which is one of the biggest banks in Australia and a huge global force that has an, enor- character, has an enormous impact the way you treat people. Nobody wants to be ripped off or credit taking for what they do. So it, do you find that people in the business world are beginning to realize that lack of character has a huge impact on the bottom line? It's not just all about touchy-feely altruism. Are they getting that, do you think? 
Look, I think, uh, Warwick, intuitively, most leaders would acknowledge that truth. In practice, it's difficult to change. You know, so sometimes you've got some fairly ingrained practices that have occurred over many years and multiple levels within an organization. And so I understand the challenges that are in front of leaders in managing that. And, and how do you manage that by contributing and investing in the development of a really healthy culture? I love what Alexander Harvard wrote the book, Virtuous Leadership. And he talks about the importance of virtuous leadership. And I love the way he separates a virtue from a value. So we often talk about core values, but unfortunately, even the word value itself in a, to an extent has lost its meaning, has lost that sense of value that we would often earlier have attributed to that. And so he would describe a value as being intrinsic value, take integrity as an example. It's an intrinsic value, but it, it only becomes a virtue when it can be so habitually practiced over time that it becomes actually ingrained as part of your identity, that to violate that would cause immense internal conflict. And I love that because we see this today in practice in lots of different businesses where here are the values that are really important to us. But then the very next day, it might be, well, hang on a minute. If we follow through on this and be true to our word, we're about to wipe some value off the stock market for our company. Or look, you know, if we maintain our word on this and keep our word, then we're going to lose this sale. And so often there's those inconvenient times where a decision maker might say, look, I know this is what we said we believe in, but today, look, we've got to navigate around the edges a little bit, but then let's come back and reassure everybody that tomorrow, these are our values. And so I love what Alexander Harvard says about that. He says, well, so really that's not virtuous leadership because you're not really a core part of who you are because they're not being habitually practiced. They're not part of your identity. That's a great distinction between values and virtues. Virtue is almost being when it's so ingrained that you're just on autopilot. And yeah, it's so easy to think of the short-term profitability, but the reality is if you do that, to, let's say a supplier, they'll say, forget it, we're going to go elsewhere. So in the long term, it'll really hurt your profitability. But people just think, oh, I don't care about tomorrow's profitability, I just care about today, which is kind of dumb, but it's normal. So yeah, so this is an amazing discussion. So is there anything else you'd like to share about LCP Global and its mission and kind of the difference it's making and why it's so important? Well, you know, again, I think perhaps uh, in wrapping that up, Warwick, you know, you talk about crucible leadership. And I think the reality is leadership for many people can be incredibly lonely, you know, and yet at the same time, you know, once you move through a crucible experience, you know, for me, there's the potential for that crucible experience to transform your leadership and to transform your direction and create, as Gary said earlier, that new trajectory. And I think you know, one way to do that is to, as I said earlier, is to really surround yourself with some really good people, you know, who are committed to you, who are committed to your transformation and who are committed to you uh, creating a new trajectory for yourself and for your business. And so for us with LCP Global, I think what we've increasingly come across over time, it, leaders themselves are often incredibly lonely. They often feel the need to go through pain and through their own crucial experiences on their own. They don't have time or the luxury of time to process or they don't feel that they can take the time necessary to process that because there's the pressure to get the next result, you know, increase the bottom line and so on. So the work that we do with leaders really revolves around these five leadership anchors. And again, as I said earlier, yes, it's all about becoming a virtuous leader. For us, it's about becoming a successful leader and redefining what that means for you. 
and to create that new trajectory. And part of doing that is really reframing your journey. And so coming out of my own crucible experience, you know, I can look back, Warwick and Gowing, and tell everybody that, listen, I was let down and I was hurt and let's be really bitter and let's be really resentful and continue to be angry about that and everything else. Or I can say, you know what, it was an amazing experience. I had an amazing 18 years. I learned a lot. I met some amazing people. And here are the things I've learned. And here's what I'm leveraging now as I'm moving forward. And as we've started LCP 10 years ago, and as we're continuing to expand the work of LCP and coming alongside leaders and helping them to be successful in their businesses and in their relationship. You know, so in a way, what I've just done for you is reframed, you know, an alternate version, which really is not healthy for anybody for me to stay stuck in that earlier version. And so far better to leverage that crucible experience and see it as being transformational in its nature and moving through that now into a whole new season and wanting to be part of transforming others. So I think that's what is at the heart of, of LCP Global. And that's a great place to end the discussion and do what I like to say, land the plane. We're going to land the plane there. And what I love about that, Glenn, is what we talk about. I sign off this show every time we do it, this podcast, with a statement that says your crucible experience is not the end of your story. It's the beginning of the next chapter of your story that can lead to a life of significance. And that's what you've just described, which is really fascinating. And I hope listeners understand or see the similar experiences, even though the details are different from what Warwick went through and what you went through, Glenn, but the emotional experience behind that the difficulty emotionally, the feeling your competence and your character and all those things are in question. Those are things that the details of our circumstances aren't necessarily what govern us in those moments. You can find hope and healing through the emotional experiences that Warwick and Glenn have, have both shared here today. Glenn, how can people find out more information about LCP Global? They can visit our website at uh, www.lcp-global.com and read about the importance of these leadership anchors for themselves, but then also have a look at some of the enterprise solutions that we provide to the businesses so that, you know, and leadership teams. And to learn more about Crucible Leadership, you can visit crucibleleadership.com. You can also engage us on social media. On Facebook, it's at Crucible Leadership. On LinkedIn, it's at Warwick Fairfax. And as Glenn understands, as well as Warwick, Warwick has a silent W in the middle. So on LinkedIn, it's at W-A-R-W-I-C-K Fairfax. That's where you'll find um, Crucible Leadership on LinkedIn. Until the next time that we're together, do remember what we just summed up in this conversation, that your Crucible experience is painful, does change the trajectory of your life, as we've talked about, but it does not have to be the end of your story. In fact, as Glenn's described and as Warwick has described, it's the beginning of a new chapter of your story, which can be the most resonant one yet because it leads to a life of significance. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.